0: what the good news is now if you've grown up in the pews you might say well i already know i've i've heard that quite a bit right uh, the gospel is is the, the, the good news and the good news is salvation and so sermon done good to see you we'll I'll go home now when the new testament speaks about the gospel and speaks about the good news there is somewhat of a presumption of understanding the many prophetic pictures that were given about what this gospel what this good news would look like and Nahum is one of the places where we see that proclamation of good news as well as it really developed and fully described as What this was ultimately supposed to be and what the people of God were supposed to be waiting for. And so that's what we're going to get to look at in the second chapter of Nahum tonight is looking at what this good news uh, ultimately is. If you have your Bibles, uh, Nahum chapter 2, toward the end of the, the Minor Prophets, but before you get to the New Testament... Sometimes these minor prophets are a little tricky to get to because they're so short and they're only a couple of pages and you spin back and forth and you're like, I know it's right there. And so uh, Nahum is one of those and especially Nahum is one that we often don't get to spend a lot of time in. And it is certainly uh, a beautiful prophecy. I want to begin, though, uh, before we look at chapter two is. Uh, and chapter 1 and verse 15, I think, really does belong with chapter 2. And you might have noted last week that I left off verse 15 because I think it connects here much better than it does in chapter 1. In fact, in the Hebrew scriptures, they make their chapter break there at verse 15 and connect it to chapter 2. Uh, and I think that's rightfully so. So listen to verse 15 of chapter 1 as it introduces this good news. Nahum 1 and verse 15 Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, the imagery is a little bit interesting and I think deserves some explanation. You'll notice you see the good news there. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. That is really strange sounding. Why why are we talking about the feet of somebody running on the mountains bringing good news? What ultimately is this trying to describe? And you'll notice that in that picture, you have to somewhat visualize Uh, Two nations that have gone to battle and as they go to battle, their respective cities are waiting to hear news about what is the outcome of the battle? How is it going? And you have a city sitting back waiting for this messenger to come hopefully returning with good news and saying hey we we've won the the battles over the enemies are defeated they've all gone back to their own place and and we've been able to enjoy the victory that that's the idea of of what's being pictured of looking for the feet of the messenger on the mountain is trying to communicate that imagery is this anxious anticipation waiting for this messenger to come to bring good news you, you, don't have time but as a side point that's kind of what john the baptist is called isn't he is this messenger who's going to come and proclaim this good news as he as you wait for his arrival well that's what you see happening here it is this this picture of here is the good news who publishes feasts uh, publishes peace and proclaims keep the feast and fulfill your your vows and so there is this wonderful proclamation of good news now We've talked about how Nahum is a sequel of sorts to the book of Jonah, that Nahum is prophesying against Nineveh, but he's giving these messages to Judah. And remember, Assyria is the world power at that time. They're a cruel and vicious empire and nation and people and they have afflicted Israel in fact they've conquered the northern nation and it's one of the reasons why Jonah really had no interest in going and preaching to them is because of the terrible nature and wickedness of that city and that empire and you would expect that what this is doing right here is a good news Assyria is going to fall that would be our context as you look at chapter 1 and I remind you of some of the things that we looked at last week where you saw that God said he was going to make Nineveh's grave. And in chapter one, in verse 14, your name will no longer be perpetuated. The house of your gods will be cut off. But I want you to notice something in particular that that's interesting. In verse 15, notice he ends that by proclamation of the good news by saying, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. And some translations say, never again shall the wicked or the evil pass through you. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Here is God telling Judah, hey, proclamation of peace, good news to you. You should enjoy your feasts and keep your vows because... Worthless, wicked people are never going to come through your land again. Now, if you know a little bit of Bible history, that doesn't really happen, does it? In fact, as this is written, you have probably Nahum speaking around uh, 612 to 650 BC. It's it's not long until the Babylonians are going to come and destroy Assyria. And when the Babylonians come, of course, then Judah lives in freedom and happiness, right? No, literally six years later is the first invasion against Judah. So I want you to think about this proclamation to say, hey, the worthless and the wicked are never gonna come through your land again. Clearly, there is something more that is being depicted here in by saying the worthless are never gonna come through your land. It can't just be simply saying, Good news, Assyria is gone because he says far more than that. And we'll see even more of that as we move through through chapter two. It's so one of the things I want you to have in your mind is what we are seeing is that this fall of Assyria that is being described in the book of Nahum is representing something bigger in God's plan. Something more must be in God's mind about what he's speaking about to say the worthless will never pass through your land again and the wicked are going to be completely cut off. Now, I want to make a quick aside with that because I think for far too long, and I'll speak for myself and you can decide if you're in the same boat with me or not, but far too long for me. I would go through minor prophets and the major prophets and just go, "Okay, this whole book is about a serious fall and so all we're reading about is a serious fall and and totally miss The bigger pictures of what God is painting in these prophets, a huge failure in my reading. And I do think that might be one of the reasons why for so long there's been somewhat of a trend and a tradition to say, well, you know, the Old Testament prophets are not really relevant. They're not written to us. We're just going to stay in the New Testament and enjoy all that. And what's the point of studying those things? And I think it comes from that idea. Well, it's talking about Assyria and Assyria is gone. So who really cares? But I want you to see that there are places like this in the prophecies where God isn't talking about Assyria only, but is speaking of something bigger about his grand plan for the world and for his people. And so here is that proclamation of good news. And this good news that the people are waiting for is going to enjoy that the worthless will never pass through them and they'll be able to keep their feasts and keep their vows. So chapter two now sets the table of what the good news is going to look like. So notice chapter two, verse one. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. to we'll start with that first picture. Is I want you to notice that there is a picture of restoration. And again, I want you to think about the words of verse 2 to say that the Lord is restoring the majesty of Israel. All right. Well, again, if you're sitting there in the days of the Assyrian Empire that's ruling over, over that land, it doesn't look very glorious. And as I just reminded us that... The Babylonians are going to take over and the Persians are going to take over. And the Greeks and the Roman Empire are going to take over. Where is this glory pointing to? Because it can't just be a physical, hey, Israel's glory is going to be restored when, Israel, when Assyria is taken away. It's looking for something bigger and looking for something bigger. More, And I want you to notice one of the pictures that's given here. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Now listen to what God tells for these Assyrians to do. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. And there almost needs to be a parenthesis there because it's not going to matter. Hey, Nineveh, go ahead and get ready. Go ahead and watch the roads and be looking out for the armies to come and, and, and dress for battle and get all your strength together because it's not going to matter because verse two, the Lord is going to restore the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. There is a picture that is being taught to the people of God that. When you try to stand against God, you are not going to be able to stand at all. And he's using Assyria as the picture of that. The Assyrians are standing against God's people. They have oppressed them. They have attacked them. A cruel and violent nation. And here is God saying, I'm going to do something about that. And you can have the largest army and the strongest defenses. But when God comes against you, you are absolutely going to fail. And so this is this this great picture. But I want you to see that that's the whole idea of how God works. This picture is not an anomaly. That what God is always doing in these pictures is trying to give us strength in hope. And reminding us that God has the power to radically restore the life of his people. Here they are under Assyrian oppression. Things look terrible. Things aren't going to get any better. They're a cruel and violent nation. And God says, just hold on a minute. I'm going to deal with them and I'm going to restore your fortunes. I'm going to give a reversal. I'm going to help you and I'm going to take care of you. And think about how many times God does that. I'll just give you a couple of examples. But you could probably do this with every figure that is recorded in the scriptures. How about the life of Job? He loses everything and God loves to then restore. Here you're going through this great trial and you've lost an awful lot. But at the end of of that account in chapter 42, we see God restoring Job. How about the life of David? David is such an interesting person. For this, this young man to be told, you're anointed as king over Israel, only to subsequently be chased all over the countryside by Saul. And it doesn't look like you're going to be king. It looks like things are terrible. It looks like God's promises can't possibly come true. I thought I was supposed to be king, and I'm about to die out here. Saul's going to kill me. And yet, inevitably, God restores David to his place. And you can think about the life of Joseph. I look forward to being able to talk about him maybe next year. I'm not sure. He's kicking around in my head that we'll talk about him soon and study his life again. The life of Joseph restoration comes after 13 years of just absolute misery where God made a a promise through a vision to Joseph that your whole family is going to bow down to you and then the very next scene is, hey, your brothers are trying to kill you and when they can't kill you, they'll just sell you and then they sell you and you go off into Egypt and then you're going to get falsely accused of crimes you didn't commit only to be thrown in a dungeon, only to be forgotten by the people that you tried to help, only to finally come back around and then be elevated. God loves to restore. And that's what you're seeing pictured here as Assyria becomes symbolic of how God operates for his people, is that he always brings restoration, but restoration's never immediate. And this is usually our challenge. Our challenge is that with restoration, we want restoration now, right? If I'm, if I'm Job, okay, I've lost everything, so chapter 42 needs to happen after chapter 2. Right? I don't want chapters 3 to 41, I just need to have right on restore me. Or if I'm David and here I am running for my life then surely God is going to restore me immediately and not allow it to be years and years to go by until Saul is finally dead. Or if I'm Joseph and I think, okay, my brothers threw me in the pit, surely tomorrow I'm going to get my upper hand over them and not have to go all the way to Egypt or into a dungeon or in all of those things. But this is always the way God operates. Listen to how Isaiah said this. Isaiah 40 and verse 28 is he opens his section of comfort. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. I'll, just, I'll Settle on that for a minute. In all of his doings and all of his dealings with people, there's not a moment where he goes, you know, I'm kind of tired. I need to take a break. I need to take a rest and I'll get back to this whole crazy world tomorrow. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. Notice, if you try to rely on your own strength, even if you're young, you're a strapping young man. you got the world by the tail, right? That's what he's describing here. He says, you're ultimately going to faint, you're going to be weary. You're going to become exhausted. Well, listen to what he says. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, there's a key in here. Notice he's describing, they will mount up with their wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Who are the people who are not going to become weary? Who are the people who are going to be strengthened? They who wait for the Lord. The good news is God restores, but you have to wait for that restoration. The good news is God will act for his people. But you're going to have to wait for that restoration and wait for that reversal that that time is coming because that is how God operates. If you were here this morning, click in everything we talked about with the storm, you got to go through the storm. And when you come out on the other side, there's your restoration waiting for you that God is going to give you the strength that you need. And so you're getting that picture here with Nahum. The scatterers come against you. And so it doesn't matter if Assyria gathers all of its strength. The Lord is going to fight for his people and restore the majesty of Israel. And he's going to ruin this nation because judgment is finally coming upon them. And that's the rest of the picture of chapter 2 is this good news of God bringing due judgment. Listen to the picture in verse 3. Nahum 2 verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers as they stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open and the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off and her slave girls are lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry out. But none turn back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish in all the loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were and none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his cave with prey and his dens with torn flesh. All right, lots of imagery. brother, then go, what in the world is he talking about right here? Some really amazing pictures, though, are being driven at here. And in verses 3 through 7, you just are supposed to kind of visualize the chaos. Here is this great city, powerful Nineveh. Ruler over the world at that time. And he says, here's how it's all going to go for it for Nineveh. They're going to be running around like mad when all of this happens. Verse four, the chariots racing madly through the streets, rushing to and fro in the the squares. Verses 5 and 6 are doing the same thing. People are running around. The officers are stumbling as they're going. There's just a chaotic scene as they try to get ready as they're going to fall in in, in battle because God is coming against them and they are going to lose. One of the vivid imageries that was my favorite of is in verse 8. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. It's like this imagery of like um, either if you wanted to think of a swimming pool or think of a drain like in a bathtub or a shower and you're watching the water just run away. Is there anything that you can possibly do to catch that water to stop it from going all down the drain? That's what notice the picture is given there in in verse eight. They're crying out. Stop. (laughs) Imagine yelling to the water. Stop. Don't go down the drain. (laughs) And it's not going to stop. Because the picture is Nineveh's glory and Nineveh's power are are never going to return. There's a play on words here, though. Play on pictures. In Isaiah chapter 8, Assyria was depicted as the overwhelming flood who was going to come against Israel and come against the world. And now here is God saying, now he's going to fade down the drain. <laughs> he said, here you are, is this great powerful flood, and now you're just going to, and everybody's going to say, stop, water, stop. And it's not going to matter because the water's going to recede and go away. Same thing is being pictured in verses 10 through 12. It's a reversal image. The, the hunter is becoming the hunted. It is really interesting that you have this description about lions. I really thought about throwing up some of the images uh, of Assyrian on there but i felt like it would take up too much time but the the assyrians describe themselves and depict themselves as these mighty lions who had conquered the world and they would even go out on lion hunts to try to show how powerful they are and how they've been able to conquer everywhere and those reliefs of their walls that show all that and how they were able to do that and notice the the picture here is so where is the lion's den now You thought you were so great and so powerful that you were the top of the food chain and you were the greatest. And now the lion doesn't even have a lair anymore. You don't even have a place anymore because you've been completely cut off from from the world because God has made his decree that he is going to destroy. What's the good news? Nobody's getting away with anything here. You know, with all the wickedness of what Assyria would have been at that time and all their cruelty and wickedness. And we'll talk about more about that, Lord willing, next week, because chapter three really depicts what they did. Here's God saying, I know what they did and I'm taking note and I'm bringing judgment against them for this. Now, I want to talk about more, and I want to be able to spend the time that I have talking about why this matters to us and what this is supposed to look like for us today here in 2023. So there's this prophecy that's nearly 3,000 or oh, well, 2,600 years old. You know, what, what does this ultimately mean for us? Nahum borrows from Isaiah. If you hear chapter 1 and verse 15, this behold on the mountains, the feet of him, who brings this good news, who publishes peace. He's using something that Isaiah spoke about around a hundred years earlier. Listen to how Isaiah said it. Isaiah 52 in verse six, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak here. I am how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You'll notice there's a lot of similarities there to what Nahum says in chapter 1 and verse 15. There's really one primary distinction is that Isaiah states what the good news was when the messenger came back. And when the messenger is running back and say, I've got good news for everybody and everybody's waiting to hear. All right. Well, what's the good news? Here's the good news. Your God reigns. And sometimes this is an important picture that gets missed about what the gospel is. The reason that we can have hope that God is going to restore his people is because he's in charge. Your God reigns. The reason we know that the worthless and the wicked will receive the rightful judgment for all the things that they have done is because God is in charge and the good news message is your God reigns. And the reason that you can wait for Him like Isaiah says that those who... Wait for the Lord are going to have their strength renewed and they will mount up with wings like eagles. And you say, well, how can I wait for that? Because, you know, the good news, you've heard this message. The good news is God is in charge. The good news is your God reigns. And to bring that today. When you watch the news and you think man the world is falling down and now there's things are terrible and it's just full of wickedness and evil and it's all falling to pieces and what's going on around here you've heard the good news your god reigns so your hope can be restored and you don't have to worry about all the affairs that are going on and our country or other countries or around the world because you know you have heard the good news and the good news is God reigns in fact what did isaiah said he does not grow weary he does not grow faint he does not go on vacation and need a break he reigns he's in charge now i want to pull that forward to the new testament because you might also note that paul uses this too Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? I, I love this section of questioning that Paul has. I, I like backward logic, and this is this is one of those moments where you get to see this. Watch him work backward in, in this text. How will they call on him? Who have not believed because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right. So that requires faith, requires belief. Well, how are they going to be able to call on the Lord and be saved if they don't believe? And then the question again. Well, how are they going to believe if they've never heard? And then he walks it backward again. Well, how are they going to hear? Unless someone is preaching and then he walks it backward again. And how is any going to preach if someone is not sent? So he's just doing this logical walk is everyone needs to call the name of the Lord to be saved. But how are they going to call if they don't believe? And if they how are they going to believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if someone doesn't preach? And how are they going to preach if someone doesn't go? And so he's asking all these questions and he starts drawing this conclusion as it is written. And then notice he quotes Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. All right, let's break this down because the easy default here would be like, okay, so we all need to be the feet and go out on the mountains. But that's really not the point that that he's getting at here. He's asking a really important question about what this message entails. And he quotes Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? And then he makes an observation not everyone has obeyed this good news. Not everybody's believing the gospel message. Well, what did we just say the good news is? Your God reigns. Your God is in charge. He is on the throne. He is ruling over heaven and earth. Your hope is found in him. And then notice the point that he drives at it. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Here's, here's the big deal. It's one thing for us today that we have heard the good news. Your God reigns. But then he drives it a little bit further and says, you know what that good news message is? It's the message of Christ. In essence, the resurrection of Jesus is the visual proof to know that your God reigns. We have this extra layer that's been given to us. It's not simply that we have heard the good news proclaimed. Your God reigns and God is going to judge. And he is going to deal with evil and all of your hope can be bound in him. And you can wait for the Lord because of his promises to restore his people. He goes one step further and says it's also in the message of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is everything because he raises from the dead. He ascends to the throne and he's not taking a vacation. What does it say he does? He takes his rightful place on the throne. And 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us he will continue to rule until all the enemies are put under his feet. This is what Nahum is symbolizing in this very small picture. Nahum in his day and time says, I look at Assyria and I'm proclaiming good news that God is dealing with that wicked nation and he is going to restore his people. And God explodes that on a cosmic level and says, here's the good news. If you will believe in the Lord and put your faith in him and wait on him and put your trust in him, he will restore your life. He will give you the restoration you need. He will give you the hope that you are looking for. And the visual proof to know that God is on the throne reigning is found in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We don't have time, but that was Peter's sermon in Acts 2, basically. The whole thrust of Peter's sermon in Acts 2 was he's on the throne and what you see proves the power of Christ ruling over all the earth. The good news is bound up in the truth that God reigns. And if God reigns, enemies will be dealt with. And if God reigns, friends, if he says your sins are forgiven, then your sins are forgiven. And your God reigns means if he says to you, I will restore your life. And if you put your trust in me, I will give you wings like eagles and give you the strength to get through. Then it's going to happen. This is the power of what the gospel is ultimately about. And I hope it gives you a greater depth of when you're in the New Testament and you read, here's the gospel being proclaimed. The gospel message was not merely, hey, you can be saved from your sins, but far bigger. Trying to show with God on the throne, all of those promises have to come true. All right, let's go to God in prayer. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, Lord, your proclamation of good news is, is stunning. And Lord, it gives us great hope to hear and to know that you are reigning over all things on this earth that nothing is outside of your knowledge, that no one is getting away with any injustices or any sins, but that all of it will come before you, and you will be the righteous judge who will make all things right in the final day. Lord, I pray that you would give us a patience and a faith to wait for you. Lord, sometimes we become frustrated, frustrated, and tempted to turn to sin because we want to see something happen today. And Lord, I pray that we would wait for you, that we would look for your salvation, look for your restoration, look for your reversal in your time, just as you have done to so many people in the past that we read about. And so, Lord, we put our faith in you and we will wait for you though we do not know what will happen in the days ahead we know that though since you are in charge we have no need to worry and no need to fear lord we pray that there would be a great restoration upon this earth that people would turn back to you before it's too late that they would see the folly of human wisdom see the foolishness of the way that culture is moving and rejecting you and rejecting your wisdom Lord, we pray. We praise you for being slow to anger, compassionate, and desiring for all people to turn back to you before it's too late. Help us to give this good news to the rest of the world, to tell others that you are in charge, and our hope can rest in the fact that you are on the throne, and you will make all things right. In Jesus' name. Amen.